Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Bob Roth is the guy who teaches Transcendental Meditation to lots of very, very, very well-known people, uh, including George Stephanopoulos and Robin Roberts, both previous guests on this podcast, David Letterman, and uh, so many celebrities, such a cavalcade of stars, I can't even begin to list them all, but um, we'll hear him talk about it a little bit. And um, I've met him one time before. We had lunch about a year ago, and we had a very frank conversation at that time because there is, for a variety of reasons, uh, some level of distrust or suspicion on the part of some in uh, the meditation tradition out of which I emerge, Buddhism slash secular mindfulness, about TM, Transcendental Meditation, which kind of emerges out of Hindu or Vedic meditation. And there have been critical books uh, written about TM by former members that have helped fuel some of the aforementioned skepticism, cynicism, suspicion that I was talking about, including – actually, you might want to go back and listen to Claire Hoffman uh, who gave an interview on this podcast. She grew up in, in the TM or a specific part of the TM organization in Iowa and, and wrote a book called Greetings from Utopia Park in which she uh, sort of talked in some mixed ways about about all of that. Um so, so long way of saying there, there's been um, some weirdness, let's just say, about uh, but between the two schools of meditation, and, and in part fueled by some of the things that former TMers have have come out to say about the founder of of the organization, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who again you'll hear us talk about. So, Bob and I had lunch about a year ago, and uh, we he, I, I asked him all the obnoxious questions I could come up with, and I found him to be utterly undefensive about it and um so uh, i was looking forward to having him on here because he has a new book out called strength in stillness the power of transcendental meditation and um i wanted to talk to him about his book about the practice of tm and then also wanted to just tick off all these questions uh that i've heard uh, about the organization and you'll get to hear him answer them and it's really interesting uh, and his story of how he got into this organization is uh, also quite interesting. So without further ado, here he is, Bob Roth. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Sir, thank you for coming on. Wonderful to be here. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It's a a first for me to write a book like this and to have it be recognized increasingly by the media. Yeah. It's a first. Something familiar for you, but new for me. You know a few folks in the media. <laughs> I do know a few <laughs> folks in the media, and they all know you. <laughs> yeah. So so before we get to the book, I just want to – can you give me your, some of your story, personal story? How did you – Meditation Bob, as Dave Letterman once called you, how did you come to meditation? Unusual story. Um, I grew up in a very political family in the 1950s and 1960s in the San Francisco Bay Area. My family was so political that I like to say that I knew I was a Democrat before I knew I was Jewish. Because <laughs> we were just, that's all we talked about. You know, we just talked politics and, you know, Goldwater and Johnson. And I worked for Bobby Kennedy and when I was in high school and I wanted to be a U.S. senator like Bobby Kennedy after he was assassinated. And I went to Berkeley. Is this too much detail here? No. Oh, I, went, I went to Berkeley in 1968 with the intention of going to Bolt Law School, and that was my career path. And my dad was a doctor, my mom was an educator, and uh, Berkeley in 1968 was insane. And it was, I mean, I was going to school full-time, I was working full-time, I had tanks parked outside my door because of People's Park, there were tear gas, and it just dawned on me that politics as a, and uh, political life as a channel for healing the nation, soul of the nation, that wasn't going to happen. So I thought, okay, rather than sweeping political change, how about if I worked one at a time and I got into education? So I thought I'll get a doctor in educational curriculum and develop curriculum. I was particularly interested in inner city school kids. And um, as I was working towards that, I thought, okay, you know, help kids from kindergarten and pre-kindergarten on get the tools, equip them so that they could handle the ever impossible world that was coming their way. 
and the old quote by Yeats that Yeats that said, uh, "Education shouldn't be about uh, filling the pail; it should be about lighting a fire." Hmm. So I'm going to school full time, working full time, uh, tanks, stressed. And a friend of mine who I trusted, who was normal, said, you know, you should learn Transcendental Meditation. And I had two responses. First of all, it was outside of, I didn't even know what it meant. And my other response was, I got enough issues with my own religion. (laughs) So it was a religion. He said, no, no, it's not a religion. You don't have to believe in anything. It's really good. Wakes up your brain. It's relaxing. So I was pretty stressed and I I wasn't into drugs. So I said, well, give it a try. I trusted him and I learned it. And well, one of the things that I remember going to the talk introductory talk and this woman said gave the talk and i said okay how much of this stuff but i didn't say stuff do i have to believe in for it to work because i'm a really skeptical person by nature i'm not a believer you know i'm and she said you could be i could be 100 percent skeptical and the technique would work just as well as anything else and uh, i tried it and it was immediately significant immediately relaxing physiologically just and yet my mind was settled but wide awake and one of my first thoughts afterwards wasn't about getting enlightened was, oh, I'd like to teach this to kids. Huh. So huh. I became a teacher three years later. I studied with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I became a teacher in 1972. A in teacher my, of, of transcendental, transcendental meditation. I'm sorry, transcendental meditation. So let me just stop you for one sure. second. Tell Two things that would be worth explaining to the audience. One is what are you doing in your mind while meditating in this way, the TM yes, way? That's a big one. And – who is Maharishi Mahesh Yogi? Great. So, to step back for a moment, to understand transcendental meditation, so what I'm doing is I'm thinking a mantra, and I'm thinking it in, which is in TM, is a word or a sound that has no meaning, and I'm thinking it in a way that was tra- I was trained one-to-one by a teacher of how to think the mantra effortlessly, easily, in accord with the mind's own nature which is to seek some field of greater satisfaction. And when I do that, from the first meditation, or second, max, my attention goes, the analogy I like to use is of an ocean, waves, choppy waves on the surface. You're on a little boat, you're in the middle of the Atlantic, and you get these giant waves, and you think, oh my God, the whole ocean is an upheaval. But if you could do a cross-section of the ocean, you'd realize little 30-foot waves, ocean is a mile deep, silent depth at the depth. Not the whole ocean. So the analogy is the mind. The surface of the mind, the waves, called the monkey mind, I like to call it the gotta, gotta, gotta mind. I gotta do this, and I gotta do that, and I gotta call him, and I got all the gottas. And it's a natural human desire to say, I'd love to have some inner equanimity, some inner clarity, some inner folk, some inner settledness. And the operative word there is inner, and the question is, such a thing as an inner, and if so, how do we get there? So in Transcendental Meditation, we hypothesize there's a vertical dimension to the mind. The mind is not just the waves, but there's intuition and deep feeling level. And deep within every human being right now, you don't have to believe it, is a level of the mind which is calm and settled and wide awake. And in Transcendental Meditation, we use a mantra, which I just said, a word or a sound, no meaning, simple, that a teacher gives you, and teaches you how to use it so completely without, 100% without effort, not 20% effort, 100% without effort, the mind just settles down and accesses that calm. We can go in later about the research behind it and all of that, but accesses that calm. And one last thing. Question is... There's no time limit on this. This is a podcast. You go for it. Question is, people say, well, how do you get there? Because some people say to me, well, I've tried mindfulness, I tried vipassana, and they do it, and I encourage it, fine, that's great. But that there's some um, monitoring, they call it open monitoring, some mindfulness awareness of thought. And it can be, as, as you had in your, the way, the brain with a, training the brain. Yes, yeah, like with a, 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 a lion tamer. Yeah, yeah, yeah lion yes, tamer. Yeah. Transcendental meditation, 180 degrees opposite of that. There's no taming of the brain. The reason is, it was Maharishi, and I'll come back to his, his insight that it's not the nature of the mind to wander aimlessly. The mind does not have to be corralled, or you don't have to have like a horse in a small corral and then open it up. 
the na- the deep nature of the mind is to be drawn to something more satisfying. Mm-hmm. So if you listen to some music, if you're listening to terrible music in this room and beautiful music comes on in the other room, there's no effort. Your attention goes to beautiful music. If you are going through the dials and you have some lousy show and you find this one with an interesting conversation with a guest, your mind stays with it. It's not an acquired skill to listen to beautiful music. So the hypothesis is, is that inside you and me, there's a field of great satisfaction and charm. And in transcendental meditation, like a dive, we learn how to give the attention of the mind in inward direction. And Dan, without any effort, literally, it's not only the easiest meditation one ever does, it's the easiest thing you ever do. <laughs> the mind is drawn inward, brought about by its own nature. So I would just say, I think the 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 lion tamer thing is a little misleading. I mean, it's my fault. Um, but I use this, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with mm-hmm. it, I use this cartoon that has a lion tamer. He's it's a got good a bull one. whip, and then he's got a lion on, uh, instead of the lion, it's a brain. Um, but... I've been justifiably criticized for this because um, that is a bit of an aggressive attitude toward your own mind. And even in mindfulness meditation, which is different from TM in some significant ways in in that we don't use a mantra and we just sort of focus on the breath. Mm -hmm. Then when we get distracted, we start again. That effortlessness is actually a big part of that practice as well. Um, I use the lion tamer as a joke. But it is important not to latch on to it too seriously because it does engender, again, as I said before, a sort of hostile attitude toward the comings and goings the nature of, of your the own mind. mind. Yeah. yeah, the nature yeah. of the mind is crazy and chaotic, and that's okay. Fighting it is actually the worst thing you can do. The best thing you can do is just see it for what it is and let it go. Um, so I think there's probably more commonality between Well, you the know, the practices. interesting thing, because I read your book. I think it's great. I don't see – it's like mindfulness techniques and I've been trained by Sharon Salzberg and John Kabat-Zinn and, and I think it's great. I don't see it as siloing and you and I had that discussion before. In the toolbox, there are many tools and in mindfulness, there are many different techniques and my understanding is and from my own practice, <clears throat> you learn how to put your attention on your breath naturally. You put your attention on some body scan naturally. Put your attention on the environment. So in Transcendental Meditation, you simply learn how to put your attention at that deepest level. Yeah. And and so it's not a question of either or. I think it's a yes and. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of sectarianism. You and I have discussed this Don't like off, it. Off, <laughs> offline. There's a lot of sectarianism in the meditation world. Not a ton, but there's no, some. And it's getting a little less. I think so. Yeah. Um, and I'm of the view, some people will say to me once they know a little bit about meditation, they're like, oh, so you're a mindfulness guy, so you do look down on TM. Absolutely not. TM is, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, if I run astray factually here, but TM is a version of Vedic meditation, which has been around for 3,000 years. Uh, um, there's, to me, the argument for it is unassailable. Now, there you can, there are, we'll talk about this, there are people who have qualms with some parts of TM, and we can talk about that as well. But in terms of being overly siloed, I'm of the view that there are lots of ways to train the mind, and you should investigate all of them if and find what's right for you, and you can actually do many of them at the same time. Again, this is just my view. Yeah, I mean, again, tools in the toolbox. And I think a person should investigate. If someone says to me, well, I've tried meditation and it's hard or I can't do it, I can't clear my mind. Well, I say keep looking. But my only thing is look where there's data. You know, there's like these days, there's such a fad now. There's legitimate forms. There's people who've been doing it for a while and they're really going deeply into the whole field and measuring and evaluating. And then there's just sort of noise and I think noise is something, you know, you can just look for substance. That's I what I'd say. That. Yes. Yeah. Look for substance. Because the because the problems what what I think what what draws a person to look for meditation is often something very substantive. Either it's anxiety or depression or this or that, or else it's just a desire to be ten percent happier. That's are significant things. Don't be trivial when you're looking for how to address those issues. Right. Yeah. That's what I would say. Yeah, I, fu- I fully agree with that. So Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Yeah, okay. So Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, 
not the person that you read about and have read about if you're my age in the newspapers. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was a um, physicist, trained as a physicist. By the way, he was in the newspapers in your age because he was the Beatles, known as yeah, the guru say, to the yeah, Beatles. That's right. Yeah. Um, was a physicist, trained as a physicist, and then had a chance to spend 13 years with his teacher, whose name was um, Brahmananda Saraswati in India. And after Brahmananda or Gurudev, they call him, passed away, Maharshi took two years of silence. And then in 1955, he began traveling around India um, saying basically that meditation is for everyone. The ability to transcend, and we can talk about that later, what does transcend mean? The ability to transcend is everyone's birthright. This isn't something that some people, an acquired skill that you get better at over months and years, you actually can master it, pretty radical, master it within a few days, the ability to transcend. And he was just a radical. And then in, in, but people learned it and then he started traveling around the world. And in 1959, he came to San Francisco. The first thing he did is he went to scientists at UC and UCLA and said, you should study this because no one's going to believe me the way I'm dressed study this. This is going to have neurophysiological changes. So the he's teaching TM and, and around the world. And then in 1967, he's giving a talk at a hotel in London and three young guys walk in, followed by a bunch of press. And it was the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, three of the Beatles. Ringo was at home with his newborn son. So then next day they go off to Wales or something. And then they learned, the Beatles learned to meditate from Harishi. And then the next year they spend a month, some of them in India and then Maharishi became guru to the Beatles and all this sort of stuff. And I'll just fast forward. I was with because I spent a lot of time over the years with Maharishi. He passed away in nineteen. I mean, in twenty twenty oh eight two thousand and eight. And a reporter was asking him before he passed away fifty years. He said, "You must have been very happy, you know, what the Beatles did for your movement." And he said, "I love the Beatles, but they actually set my work back thirty years." because I wanted this to be a technique that stood on its own and it wasn't just for hippies and it wasn't, you know, for tune in, that sort of thing. This was just would be a scientifically established technique. And then he said it's finally coming back around to where he wanted it to be. Interestingly, at a time that Paul and Ringo are very strongly advocating and supporting the work of the David Lynch Foundation bringing TM around. So that was his comment that that actually set his work back 30 years. So now you are with the David Lynch Foundation. What is that? Who's David Lynch for those who don't know who he is and what do you guys do? David Lynch, Twin Peaks, um, great filmmaker going back to uh, Eraserhead and Blue Blue Velvet Velvet and all these things. Um, 13 years, David had been practicing TMs since 1973. I started in 1969. pretty close the same amount of time. And we had gotten to be friends, although we're completely different people because I have a sort of a journalist mentality where I want everybody to understand every word I'm saying and he just loves abstraction. But 13 years ago, I went to him and I said, I'd love to start a foundation, raise money so we could bring TM to inner city school kids. Back to your original mission. From 1969. Right. Same thought. And he said, great. And so we started the foundation. Neither of us knew what a 501c3 was. We just knew we wanted to do this. Started the foundation, got it established, raised money. And now today we've taught, provided scholarships for 600,000 inner city school kids to learn to meditate. And up until then, you had been part of the Maharishi's organization. TM organization. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I'd spent, I spent time with him at different times throughout over the years. Yeah. Yeah. And I still am. I mean, I'm still, I'm a teacher of transcendental meditation. So there's two different 501c3s. Maharshi Foundation, TM organization, is the organization that trains teachers and opens centers, and it's a nonprofit organization that the David Lynch Foundation was established as its own 501c3 to raise funds so we could contract with the TM organization, train some of these teachers, especially to work with veterans who have trauma or work with inner city school kids who live in fear or women who are survivors of domestic violence. So they're they're uh, sister organizations collaborate. And you work in both. Yeah. How much does it cost to learn TM? It goes anywhere from about $960 if a person can afford it down to $360 
if a person can't afford it, down to nothing if they have no money. We really now do it so there's almost no reason. If a person genuinely wants to learn to meditate, there's no obstacle to learning. There's no financial obstacle if they genuinely want to learn. Well, and, and the prices came because it used to be like $2,000, right? There was, uh, there was at some point <clears throat> 10 years ago or <clears throat> something like that, and I kind of think it was because um, at the time – Maharishi was doing other things and there wasn't a real outreach to teach TM at the time. There was other things that were going on looking at Ayurvedic medicine. But then, you know, he always wanted it to be affordable and he always, his mission from the beginning was everybody should have access to this. And what we're doing now is we're in Washington, D.C., working with members of Congress and conducting and funding or helping to fund the research phase three clinical trials so that TM could be reimbursable for any veteran who wants to meditate for free. And we're working with, for example, the Department of Defense uh, three years ago gave $2.5 million for a study to look at the effect of TM on post-traumatic stress on post-9-11 veterans. Just finished it, compared to something called prolonged exposure, which is when, you may know this, a veteran sees videos of people being blown up and that numbs them. And TM was found to be as good, if not better, then prolonged exposure, but the advantage was the the veterans loved meditating and they didn't like looking at the videos of people being blown up. Well, why does it cost so much? Because that that is quite a big difference from most other forms of meditation. Well, yes and no. It costs so much because what happens, most other forms of meditation are, you can read it, learn it from a book, you can take mass, you can get it online the ability to do those types of mindfulness practices are much simpler to teach. Transcendental meditation requires one-to-one instruction to learn that ability to transcend, to go beyond this conscious, focused, got a monkey mind and settle down and experience that transcendent level of the mind, that one's own quiet self. And that requires about 10 hours of instruction from a teacher individually and in small groups. And then you also have any TM teacher anywhere in the world is available to you to support your meditation for the rest of your life at no expense. So what you're doing when you do that is you're allowing, you're paying, if you have the money, you're paying that person's salary so that they can raise, it's a profession, so they could raise a family and and uh, take kids on vacation. It's a modest income. Most people don't start for $960. We, you know, they can't afford it. But those who can pay so that the others who, can, who can't afford it can. But it's actually, I was one time being challenged by a psychiatrist. He said, $960. And then he paused and he said, well, I get $520 for a 50-minute session. And this could be hundreds of hours of training yeah. individually. So it's not, it's insignificant. Uh because it's the individual instruction. And you also a- a- ask something unusual of the students, which is two 20-minute sessions every day. Yeah, and I found it interesting because you say in your book even one minute or five minutes and build up and build up. Yeah. And people come to me all the time and they say, what, 20 minutes? I can't even – I can't close my eyes. I've done mindfulness after three or four or eight minutes. I'm going out of my mind. And I said, just give me the four days because it's an hour a day over four days. And within the first or second day, you say 20 minutes, you tell them, okay, 20 minutes. They go, what? I never imagined I could close my eyes for the, and meditate for that long because the mind is drawn to something more satisfying. And if you just sit on a horizontal level and try and control that, it's a monkey mind. But if you actually give the mind the attention of a deeper level, that vertical dimension, it's increasingly satisfying and time goes by very quickly. Well, here's my read on, on this sure. is that, that um, working with a mantra is a concentration uh, exercise, concentration meditation. You're, no. you're saying no? No, okay. not in transcendental meditation. Okay, well, tell me where I'm wrong. Okay. Because in if you are concentrating on a mantra, and this is why it requires, and when we had that conversation yeah. before, I said, I'm happy to teach you. It's completely different. If you're concentrating on a mantra, there is no difference than if you're concentrating on your breath or concentrating on a point in your body or anything. Transcendental meditation, the mantra itself is fluid. So mental repetition of the mantra in transcendental meditation is not a clear pronunciation. It's a faint idea. It's an intention. 
And that's where that personal instruction comes in. Because if you're just going to concentrate on a mantra, you can read that out of a book. But if, so number one, mantra has no meaning. Because if it had a meaning in that analogy, the cross-section of the ocean, if it had a meaning, you're stuck up here on meaning, on the gotta, gotta, gotta level of the mind. Rigid, concrete meaning. Also, the way the mantra is used, fluid, fast, slow, loud, soft, how to handle that, how to deal with thoughts. So it is very, because it's not the mantra. Mantra is like a vehicle, and you teach a person to do that, and then within moments, we teach 10-year-old children to do this, and within moments, they have that same transcendent experience, and time disappears. So it is not concentration form of meditation. Well, so I think maybe we're getting hung up on the word concentration. Possibly. It's not a clear repetition. It is not an end in itself. It is not the goal. Is The goal is not to keep repeating the mantra. The goal is to, there is no goal. The purpose of the meditation is to use the mantra in an effortless way that allows the attention of the mind to turn within, like you're teaching a child how to dive. Say, honey, stand like this, Put your set up the conditions, and without any effort, gravity takes over. So in this instance, without any effort, your mind just sinks in. And you may be without the mantra for minutes at a time. And then you're aware you're not with it, and then you're taught how to bring it back, and then you go off and you bring it back, and that's TM. It's not, oh, I was with the mantra 98% of the time, and I'm a good, I'm a good meditator. What's the difference between TM and Vedic meditation, which is you know, sort of ancient Hindu meditation, which also uses a mantra and is taught in, all over the place today? So use of a mantra in meditation is used everywhere. I mean, that's the use of a mantra, you know, that you can have in Christian meditation and anything, you know, the idea of a sound. And some Buddhists. That's right. That's right. The difference is, again, how that mantra is used. If it's used in what had been a traditional way of you, you know, you repeat it a hundred times or japa meditation, or you just keep repeating, 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 then it's just keeping you on that surface level of the mind. And nothing much, you don't have the transcendent experience. It's only in that effortlessness, gentle effortlessness, without any intention, that the attention, that it's like turn the attention of your mind inward, and you just, these in that cross-section of the ocean, these deeper levels are increasingly satisfying, and then you have the experience of the transcendent, unbounded awareness. They call it pure consciousness your own unbounded, settled self, 100% happiness, that field. It's called ananda, bliss consciousness. So your attention is drawn towards that. And when you have that experience, this is the interesting thing, so we can shift to science for a moment. When you're doing concentration forms of meditation, repetition of a mantra, you get, it creates something called gamma brain waves, which are 20 to 50 cycles per second. And that's clear your mind of thoughts, concentration. When you do open monitoring, that's a second type of meditation, which is an observational tool, observing your thoughts, observing your breath, that creates something like, and you, I'm sure you know this, theta brain waves, which are five to seven cycles per second, pre-onset dream, also alpha two, which is what, 10 to 12 cycles per second, the back of the brain. During transcendental meditation, a completely different brainwave signature called alpha one which is 8 to 10 cycles per second, and that is a state of deep relaxation and inner wakefulness. There is no engagement necessarily of the prefrontal cortex. Also at that time, there's a profound state of physiological relaxation. There's a reduction of cortisol levels by 30 to 40%, a a reduction in in reactivity to stress. So there's a whole different uh, neurophysiology in all three of these different types of meditation. um, What do you know about the jhanas? Have you heard anything about Do you know what that is? So Mm -hmm. the jhana, we've had previous guests talk about, in particular, Lee Brasington, anybody listening who wants to go back and listen to Lee Brasington. um, J-H-A-N-A is a form of... um, Is it jhana or jhana? uh, I've heard it pronounced as jhana, but I could be wrong. But this is in the Buddhist world. Uh Definitely a concentration meditation where you're concentrating on the breath, but it then opens up into these various sort of rooms in the mind, which are seem to me similar to the transcending that you're describing, that 
that you lose track of space yes. and time. Yes. Right. So this is what I meant before when I used the word concentration, which kind of mm. – I don't mean this in the in the pejorative, but kind of set you off a little bit. It was triggering a little yeah. bit. Um, what I, All I was trying to say when you were comparing a little bit um, TM to mindfulness and how one is easy and one is often thought of as hard okay. – sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was my, just going to say yeah. that, that con- concentration and um, TM, maybe not the right word, but – these practices are designed as to to produce tranquility. Mm-hmm. Now, mindfulness is a different thing. Mindfulness is the ability to see clearly what's happening in your head so that you're not owned by it. Right. And I think both are incredibly, incalculably valuable skills and mental skills to develop, and they can work in tandem. Hugely work together. Yeah, now, I want to say the transcendent is not... The door to transcendence is, transcendence is not just because if someone does TM. The experience of transcendence can happen when you hold your newborn baby in your arms. There's a silence. There's a, an amazing w- bliss that happens at that moment. There can be a moment of unity between partners. Athletes talk about the zone where they're just all of a sudden everything gets quiet and clear and you everything comes at you in slow motion. Mm-hmm. So a transcendent experience... Artists have been talking about this forever. The purpose of meditation is not to have it be random. purpose of meditation is to access that on a regular basis. And are people reaching bliss consciousness in like day one or two of your sessions with them, or does it take years to get there? Everyone is different, and the only reason people are different is the degree of stress that they have in their nervous system because that idea that mind and body are one. So if I teach, which I do, veterans – who can't sleep for more than an hour for months on end, and I teach them to meditate, you know, within a few days, most report that they're sleeping much longer. Now, the experience of bliss consciousness is not there, but the expression of a healthier physiology and brain is there. So the benefits- I've heard that anecdotally just from people I know who've taken TM who yeah. just described that they feel much more rested. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Now, the other thing that you said, which I think brings them together, is I think what, what for me, what Transcendental Meditation does, I practice it for 20 minutes first thing in the morning. I get up. It's better than sleep. George Stephanopoulos has said the yeah, same thing. Same yes. thing. It's yes. like worth hours. Now, in the middle of the day, if things start getting intense, I know body scans. I know breathing techniques, which you write about in the 10 breaths. I know those things. Yeah. They come in very handy. The ability to be more mindful Number one, spontaneously arises if I'm a little calmer inside. But these tools that you're talking about are necessary. It's not one or the other. It's yes and. Yeah, it'd be like talking about <clears throat> fitness and saying, well, you can only do cardio. You shouldn't yeah. do any muscular work. Yeah, it's, it's, or you're eating one, one you know, you're eating Healthy leafy food. greens yes. and you're not having yeah, protein. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah. I, um, I, th- I think um, there were, I can hear my Buddhist's 
Buddhist compatriots saying, well, you, you can access tranquility and mindfulness within the Buddhist tradition. And that's probably true. But I don't I'm pretty um, uh, nonsectarian. So I'm I'm going to come learn TM from you. I have no beef with it whatsoever. Uh, first of all, my feeling is all these practices actually predate Vedic or Buddhist, I think these practices were around and they got adopted by the different religious traditions. For example, I think the ability to transcend has nothing to do with Vedic or Hindu or a lot of these things you're talking about. Buddhist, they got sort of organized by the religion. But I think in some ways, if you were teaching jumping jacks in a Catholic school, it doesn't mean jumping jacks are Catholic. So I really think my ability to transcend I'm, I'm a good Jewish boy. I don't know anything about Hinduism. I've been practicing this for 50 years almost, teaching it for 46. Uh, it's fine. It's a religion. doesn't appeal. doesn't interest me. I practice it because it's a simple technique that I can do on an airplane. I can do it in a car, but someone else has to be driving. <laughs> I did it at Yankee Stadium during a bad game. You can do it anywhere. Noise is not an obstacle. So you've been doing it 50 years. Are, are you stress-free? Are you imperturbable? Oh, no. <laughs> No, but I'll tell you what I have is a whole lot of energy. I, I find that, and I find that I am. It's a good question because I'm feeling really good these days, and I think is it because of all these years of meditating? Is it just maturing? You know, just natural growth. But I feel really good. This is the best I've ever felt in my life. This is the healthiest I've ever felt in my life. This is the most energy I've ever physically felt. and psychologically. Never had. I'm 67. I've never had this much energy in my life. I've never felt this clear, focused. But of course, I get upset. I mean, I'm a human being, and I don't affect something. And if someone says, "Well, you've been meditating. How come you got upset?" I said, "I don't. I'm, I'm a normal person. I'm just a guy. I'm doing the best I can. TM is great, but there's stuff that happens in life." that overwhelms, and next time I hope I do better. I'm not proud of the way I behave. Next time I'll do better, and it's meditation, or do I need to talk to somebody? But it's a, I'm a big, I just want to grow. I just want to grow, and I do those things that help me grow. So let, let me test your uh, stress uh, response, because as you know, there are a lot of, there have over time, including some guests on this podcast who have very critical things to say about the TM organization. Bring it on. So, and I, I know from having spoken to you about this personally, that actually you're, you don't appear to be very defensive about this stuff. So we'll just have a good chat about it. Um, uh, where to start? Um, flying. Oh, uh, so there's this, there's this thing in the TM organization, as far as I understand it, where uh, out in – you guys have some land out in uh, Iowa? That, that, by the way, that's an actual state. Right. <laughs> yeah. Iowa, yeah, yes. Iowa. Fairfield, a, Iowa. Yeah, Fairfield, Iowa. Yeah, Fairfield, Iowa. Golden domes on the property and people do this thing called – Yogic flying. Yogic flying. Okay. What is that? Okay, great. So I'm glad you asked because what people talk about it and what people read in the newspaper is completely different – than the reality. Okay. Okay. Have you ever heard of the um, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras? They're <laughs> written 2,500 yeah. years ago. They're the treaties on yoga. Patanjali was a great teacher, and, and so Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. I've heard of the Yoga Sutras. Yeah, okay. that's Patanjali's okay. Yoga. Okay. Same okay. thing. Okay. Yeah, so it's Patanjali was the teacher. In Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, there's two, two parts of it. The first half of the Yoga Sutras are a description of how to transcend, how to, they call it Turiyatit, that fourth state, because that's the idea that when you transcend, it's a state of consciousness distinct, neurophysiologically distinct from waking, dreaming, and sleeping states, its own state of consciousness. So Patanjali talks about how to transcend. And then in the second part, this Yoga Sutras, Patanjali says, now, if you could think from that deepest level of the mind, which is supposed to be this infinite creativity, infinite happiness, that, that, for, that field of bliss within, if you could function from that level, what would happen to your ability to your senses, hear, see, touch, taste, smell? How, how awakened are, can human senses be? How compassionate, interesting, can we be? How friendly can we be? How happy can we feel? How, um, what, how strong can our intuition be? To the extent, Patanjali hypothesized, that if you could think from that level, that you're, you could actually harness laws of nature that are deeper than gravity, that you could actually 
move, this is what he said, move through space. And then, you know, there's people who talks about Catholic, I mean, Catholic monks who did this, and there's Buddhists, Buddhist monks who talk about levitation. So when that was brought to Maharshi's attention. That's definitely true, by the way. Yes. So I'm a Buddhist, but there are lots of stuff in the Buddhist tradition. They talk about superpowers. And, All the and time. Absolutely. I mean, I don't buy it, but. Of course not. Um, just to be clear. No. So, yeah. it's, it's so when, ancient... I, when, I, when I bring up uh, allegations of, of weirdness in the TM organization, I don't want to make it seem like I don't come from, out of a tradition where there aren't plenty of the same. Right. So and it, so it's not even the TM tradition because – or whatever. Organization. Organization. Right, yeah. I mean even that. There's 8 million people who do TM. There's maybe 100,000 who've done – so anyway. So what Maharshi said – he Is said, it Maharshi or Maharishi? Mahar, well, he pronounced it Maharshi. Maharishi, Maharshi. He okay. pronounced it. Anyway, what he said is, okay, the TM part works. The transcending part works. Changes the physiology, all that. Let's do, he called it research in the field of consciousness. Let's just do research. Let's see if something, he was right for the first half of the book. Let's see if he's right in the second half of the book. And so... He taught these sutras, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and those are advanced meditation techniques. So you're sitting in meditation, and you're quiet and settled and unbounded and all that in principle, and then you learn, how do I think from that most powerful level of my mind? And there's sutras to, to compassion, kindness, all these things that we know there's, there's many sort of meditation um, approaches that talk about loving kindness, but have those thoughts from that deepest level, not up here where you're also fighting with thoughts about your, your wife and your kids, but from that level of silence. And so one of those was the so-called flying sutra. So Maharishi said, let's try that. Nobody levitates. Nobody even said they were levitating. The press loved to play on that. Well, the video I've seen is people sitting. Hopping. Yeah, hopping. Yeah. And if you go back to hopping the. Hopping in, in with their legs crossed. That's right. Yeah. Well, for those people who can do that. If you go back to the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, you'll see he describes three stages of this flying. The first stage, he, you, I'll show it to you. It's hopping like frogs. Second stage is where you're able to go up and stay. And then the third stage, Patanjali said, passage through the skies. Okay, have you seen anybody hit no, the second or third not. stage? No, yeah. and, and I don't have any – the thing is I don't, I don't have any um, – like people say, well, you've been meditating this long. Are you enlightened? I say, I don't even care. I don't even care. I want to do good in this world. I, I, I'm not trying to get enlightened. And if I did that, which I learned to do those things, I've learned those, those yoga sutras, it's great. It's like, it's like when I do that hopping thing, it's like I play sports, particularly when I was a kid. So you do the hopping thing? Yeah, I've done that. Yeah. It's like nothing fancy. Like on the regular? Huh? Like regularly you do it? Or yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And you do it on a piece of foam. It's like not anything strange. It's nothing. It looks strange. It looks very strange. Yeah. Inside, the experience is a little bit, I remember as a kid, because it's basically yoga and meditation together. It's the physicality of yoga and the mind settling down and wide awake. And I rem the best feeling, I best description I can say is when I was a kid and I lived, grew up in Marin County and like in the 1950s, 60s, you could run forever yeah. and you'd play yeah. sports and you could play from, you could play basketball from morning till night and never get, and be so happy. And that's the feeling. And it's actually not any different than that. Um I'm really embarrassed because I'm spacing on her name. The woman who wrote Greetings from Utopia Park. Um, oh, Claire Hoffman. Claire Hoffman. Good yes, friend of mine. Who is, I, taught yes. her, I taught her daughters. Right. So Claire has been a guest on this podcast, and she wrote a book, Greetings from Utopia Park, which is in many ways quite critical of the TM organization. But also she talks about yoga flying, and she says that Does she it. had an experience yeah. while doing it. Um, and my, my instinct as a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic is I've seen the video. It looks really weird, and I was, I was like, this is nuts. But she, who, again, has a lot of credibility with me just because she's oh, super critical of yeah. the organization in some ways – but also said she went back in the course of writing this book, and she did the yoga flying, and had something happened. If you took, she didn't say a, she yeah. flew. No, but, of course yeah. nobody has. Yeah. It's the first stage, it's very energizing. It's accessing, and people could be listening and saying, "Oh God, this is like Wonko." Well, you know, fifty years ago when I learned, or forty years ago, if you said you meditated, people said you're out of your mind. You didn't even say the word meditation in polite company. <laughs> so 
it does look unusual, but the inner experience of it is it's normal, fine, it's great. But people on this podcast are used to. Uh, but the other uh, thing I want to tell you, it's ain't any weirder than if somebody came and looked at guys wearing helmets and pads smacking into each other, <laughs> you know, and, and thinking that's normal. Or so it's if what it, you consider normal. If a space alien came here and saw a. Gym and people running in place for an hour or picking thing heavy things up and putting them down systematically. Yeah. Yes, of course. It's what you're used to. Yeah. It's really what you're in used to. In the 80s, to. yoga and sushi were weird. So. That's right. And so if you see it, you say, oh, that guy's just doing that yoga meditation integration. That's what he's doing. But I just want to internally, internally, it's a very normal feeling. It's not like you're in a trance. It's like Fine, if you were doing exercise, only this is sort of blissful exercise. But, but. Yeah, go ahead. Now. I love the butts. I. Yeah, you oh, and no, I have one more thing I have to say. Go, 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 go. Claire was not critical of the TM organization writ large. Claire was talking about Maharishi University of Management in Iowa, where there's a fully accredited university accredited by the same organization that accredits University of Mi- Michigan. And this was in the 1980s. Not today, but in the 1980s, she was critical of the way she was raised at that time. Yeah, because she was raised there. Yeah, she lived right. there. That's right. Trailer. She was raised yes. there. Yeah. Her mother lives there to this day. She goes back to this day. She's a really good friend of mine. As I said, I taught her kids to meditate. Claire's kids. Claire's yes, kids, yes. yeah. And um, so it's just – and that that community is changing just like every everything is changing. It's like growing up. You know, people are integrating. It used to be, oh, if you ate organic food, you were like way off on the side. But now organic food is everywhere. So what's Fairfield? If you were to go into Fairfield, Iowa with me, it's a very cool, hip. They got coffee shops and music play, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, clubs and all that sort of stuff. And the only difference is twice a day people meditate. It's very cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think twice a day meditation yeah. sounds very sane. Um, but in in terms of yeah. the – this is the but um, – uh, the, and I, you'll correct me because you know the facts better than I do. But the Maharishi did talk about some supernatural powers, strength of an elephant and all sorts of stuff that I have read about. Those um, are from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Maharishi said all the time, he said, none of this is mine. This comes from the ancient Vedic texts or before. He, he described the work that he did is he said if you had some – uh, a closet and you had some vases and they were on a shelf and they were sort of dusty and someone came along and said, oh, let's take this down, dust it off. What is this? And this is meditation. Let's dust this. Oh, this is yoga. Let's dust this one off. Oh, this is Ayurveda. Oh, let's dust this one off. Which is the Hindu health. Uh, Vedic. Yeah, yeah Vedic. Yeah, Vedic it, it, yeah. yeah, it's a Vedic, excuse me, it's a Vedic uh, approach to natural medicine. There's another one that's similar to feng shui, which is um, called vastu architecture. Now, all those things are actually quite sane. The whole idea of Ayurveda is, and they're starting to do this now, you don't necessarily to cure a disease, just give the medicine and, you know, blast the body, strengthen the immune system, take those herbs and and supplements and diet that can actually strengthen your resistance, which is what they're starting to do now in, in immunotherapy with cancer. And when it comes to Vastu, that was... Okay, you can have a green house. We live inside 90% of the time. So the whole approach to green architecture is, you know, have non-toxic materials. Well, Vastu says, okay, how much sunlight do you have? What kind of ventilation do you have? So it's all practical stuff. But but when he said strength of an elephant. He just was quoting from Patanjali. He didn't mean it literally. No, no. Not that I know of. He never told, told it to me. No, he just said stronger, more robust, healthier, more vital. What about the stuff about his sort of personal peccadillos? You know, there been a, there was a book I, I I can't remember the name who wrote the, the woman who wrote this, but robes of silk, feet of clay, or something like that. She talks about sleeping with him, and others have said that they slept with him. There was the whole so, sort so, of sexy Sadie okay. thing. Yes. So there you go. So here's a wonderful story. By the way, you seem not very stressed as I'm asking you these questions. No, because just, I just dealt to with your it, credit. It, it, Nobody it, else can see you except no, for me. No, no, I mean it's like come on. So fifty years ago, forty five years ago. Yeah. When, and now Margie's not here. Some one person writes – and we'll go back to the other thing – writes a book saying that she had set, slept with Margie. No one else who was around at the time – and that's like thousands of people – ever said that ever happened. He's been running an organization for – ran it for 50 years. 
So I just go, fine, it's her opinion. She can say whatever she wants. Now, the Sexy Sadie thing is very interesting. Can I just let me just yeah. say, I, I, uh, because Sexy I mean, Sadie you know, is a song by the Beatles. Yes. And which uh, John, John Lennon. Lennon says, what have you done? You made a fool of everyone. And right. it was like the, the story that's been told about it, which I think there's a pretty good rebuttal on. But anyway, and I'll let you handle that part. The story that's been told about it is he was upset because somebody accused them. They were hanging out with the Maharishi and allegedly the Maharishi made a pass at somebody, maybe Mia Farrow's sister. And um, and John Lennon was pissed about it and wrote Sexy Sadie as right. a, a kiss off right. to the Maharishi. Right. That being said, as far as I know, Paul McCartney and Ringo are still active TM practitioners. And uh, John Lennon and Yoko meditated. I'll tell you a wonderful story. John Lennon and Yoko meditated their whole life. He apologized to Maharishi a few years later and he used to call and check in with Maharishi and John George Harrison was also a huge supporter and, and did a lot with us. And Paul McCartney actually, David Lynch interviewed him and he said, nothing ever happened. It just got picked up by the press and nothing. And John at the time got all caught up in it. And then after when he realized nothing happened, it was just rumor. Then he was very apologetic. But I'll tell you a wonderful story. So I'm on the phone. I mean, I'm I'm on the we're here in New York and I'm in uh, Lower West Side and I get a phone call from a guy and he says, um, I'd like to learn to meditate. And I said, great. And he said, you know, I said, what, what are you interested in? And he said, well, you know, uh, I just have some stress and I'd like to feel better. I like to do that. I said, great. And he wasn't saying who he was, and I just am sensitive to that. I said, Here, how'd you hear about it? And he said, um, well, I have some friends who do it. They say TM is really good. And so we're talking on. And then he said, well, actually, I'll be honest. He said, I grew up. My parents used to both meditate twice a day, and I used to watch them meditate. And I say, and they meditated their whole lives together. And I said, oh, who are your parents? He said, John and Yoko Lennon. <laughs> and it was Sean Lennon, who I then taught to meditate. And I've taught all the McCartney kids to meditate. I meditate with Paul with Paul and his wife, Nancy, and Ringo does events for us. Nothing ever happened. Brief digression. How did you get into the situation where you teach all the media Oh, it's so wild. So I you have to taught tell you. George Stephanopoulos, Robin Roberts, here for A at ABC, both previous podcasts here. Like every celebrity you can think of, you've taught them. David Letterman, how did that happen? Howard Stern? I have Stern, no idea. Kate no, I, did, I didn't teach Howard okay. Stern. Okay. So here's the thing. I remember having this, like I'm just this normal kid who just grew up loving sports. I meditate. I'm not your normal I'm going to answer the question, but I'm not your normal meditation teacher. No, you're wearing a suit. No, and the thing is, is I'm a really skeptic person. I'm not. In, I'm skeptical. I'm not into new age. I'm not into woo woo. I love science. I'm not afraid of facing things head on. If people say, "Oh, th- I like to find the truth," I don't just go with gossip. And um, so, because of, I remember like 15 years ago telling somebody once, it's going to sound stupid, I've never met a famous person in my life. You know, I love Willie Mays. I never got to meet him. I love Bobby Kennedy. Those are the famous people I liked as a kid. And then I met David Lynch. And somehow as I was teaching, David said, oh, you know, um, you should teach this, you know, would you teach this director or Laura Dern? was meditating at the time and then it just sort of started happening we put on an event in 2009 at radio city to raise money to teach a million kids to meditate for free at and paul and ringo came well when that happened then doors started opening and i feel like on your level that some people up at that top level that i teach oh you need a you need a cardiologist i got a guy Oh, you need someone, a Pilates teacher? I got a guy. Oh, you need a meditation teacher? I got a guy. Like, you guys don't have the time to sort of sort things out yourself. So I became the go-to guy for people who wanted to I'm not to on the level of the people you're teaching meditation. George Although Stephanopoulos? Yeah, yeah, I'm not on George's level. Really? No way. He's, oh, the, he's a big I deal. I don't, I don't. Um, I, so that's how it happened, word of mouth. I don't go after anybody. And there's many other teachers who also in Los Angeles who teach well-known people. And the other thing is, I've maybe taught 50 people. I've taught thousands of inner city school kids. You just don't know about right, it. Right. Okay. A few more questions and then I want to get to the book. Um, what's the, these, this is stuff that I remember to the extent that I have any memory because it's not great from Claire's book. One of the things is about um, the people wearing the crowns. Mm-hmm. So, so the current leadership of TM no, no, wears crowns or no, something like that. No. What's going on with that? There is just in when a person learns to meditate – before they learn to meditate, there's this wonderful little ceremony of thanksgiving that's done. You probably heard about it. So yes, before I teach flowers. someone to, yeah, before I teach a person to meditate, there is 
uh, a little two-minute ceremony of Thanksgiving that I perform as a teacher that I honor the tr- tradition of teachers that have come before, that it's a reminder that this ain't my gig. It is cultural. It is not religious. And um, and it really, I think it's wonderful because it's a very modern technique, but you just take a moment. And when I've taught doctors, they say it's very much like when they do a Hippocratic Oath before they become a doctor. You just tie yourself back. So there, So in that same way, the leadership in a ceremonial way, once a year or every five years or something, just like if you if you saw the president of a university wearing a you know a robe and one of those strange hats, so in in a ceremonial for a few minutes they honor that tradition. But all these guys wear suits and ties and blue jeans and sweatshirts. Oh, so the crowns are just part of a like yeah, a, just, outfit, yeah, a just it's a moment. It's part of a ceremonial gotcha. thing that sort of links to the past. It's not that they're running around. And those guys, they're doctors and they're business people, and they just take a moment to uh, to recognize. And I think it's important. I think it's lovely that you honor the teacher. The other thing Claire talked about, this is the last obnoxious question I've got. They're all good ones. Uh, is Were there some financial issues with the organization? No. Transcendental Meditation has been a nonprofit organization for 60 years in the United States, and there has never, ever, ever been – But it's a any, global organization. Yes. Yeah. In the United States, any financial improprieties – in India, where – I don't know if you know India. it's Yes. It's like bribes and this and all this sort of stuff. Well, the TM organization, Marshy, didn't want to play do bribes. He just – he wasn't going to play the game. So there was some accusations, which turned out to be not true because when you got lawyers and looked at it. But he refused to play the game and then there was all those accusations. But in every country, it's it, that was one of the things – and I think he was smart. He said 100 percent transparency – just absolutely run it the most professional way you can. That isn't to say you don't see sort of unsourced articles and claims, but when you look for sources, it's not there. Okay, Basta, you've been here for an hour, and I haven't talked about your book. But I love this. Are you enjoying this? <laughs> I am. Of yeah, you, you would have been gone a while ago if I wasn't enjoying this. <laughs> Strength and Stillness is the name of the book, The Power of Transcendental Meditation by Bob Roth. So you uh, can't teach people to do TM unless you're teaching them one-on-one. So what are you doing in this book? Doing several things. I make a very strong point about the dangers and the hazards of stress and trauma. They should not, this should not be ignored. People, you can't just buck up. You can't just, you know, mask it with the neck, you know, mask it with some um, couple of cups of coffee or 10 cups of coffee or alcohol. You can't just manage it with Ambien and, you know, Klonopin and all these things. These is like a tumor that's there and um, needs to be addressed. Then I say meditation is, a, is looked at as a viable tool, alternative to uh, all those medications. I'm not anti-medication at all. My dad was a doctor. I think medications play a very important role. I think we over-medicate, particularly our kids, and so I look at the three different types of meditation that research is focused attention, open monitoring, and self-transcending. Focused attention being a concentration technique, open monitoring being some mindfulness or in both, and then self-transcending includes TM. And then I look at the research on those, and then I say, I practice these other two. I am a teacher of transcendental meditation. There's a lot of misunderstandings about no one really knows what it is. I talk about what transcendence means. I talk about... <clears throat> What you do when you learn the technique, and I make the point, take this seriously, meditation seriously. You can learn things as you can in your wonderful book, Meditation for the Fidgety Skeptic. I bought it. It's great. I, I did. I would have given you one, by the no, way. No, but I bought it. So I bought it. So you pay me. No. <laughs> but I say also in your arsenal, also while you're doing this in your toolbox, take time and also learn this and learn it from a teacher. Are you and, arguing for the primacy of TM or are you just no, saying they're all – No, I'm not. I'm arguing for don't be closed off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm arguing for don't – because different meditations have different outcomes. And so is vitamin C more primary than vitamin D? No. Is protein more primary than leafy greens? No. So is transcending more primary? No, but it's a missing element. And I'm a big advocate of bringing together tools that work. And it's not just, as you know, 
physical exercise or eating well. I train Olympic athletes who eat the best food and they're the best physical condition and they're so anxious they can't they're just wrought with with anxiety and I teach them TM and they made they know my, and they love it. They love it. So I, I'm just saying – so the book is making that argument and I address these things. Well, it costs money. Well, here's why it costs money and if you don't have the money, there are ways to get it without money. So basically you were answering a lot of the questions yeah, that is. I was hurling at exactly you. Exactly right because it's a bigger it's a bigger commitment. You're not just reading Dan's book. You're going to actually find a teacher and I make the argument for a teacher. When you have a child and they want to know – learn math, it ain't, doesn't hurt to have a tutor. If you – and it doesn't hurt to go to an expert. If you're sick, you don't just go to somebody on the internet, what should I do? You go to a trained doctor who can diagnose and prescribe. So go to a med- certified TM teacher and learn. And if you don't like it, quit. What if I'm in a rural area? How do I – Well, we have TM centers all over the country and all over the world, and those, those teachers go – periodically to different smaller towns and do courses. So so I go to the website. uh, And then you find out and you say, okay, I live in Biloxi, Mississippi, near Biloxi, Mississippi. There's a TM center in Biloxi and that teacher often goes and travels to those communities or those people come come to to Biloxi. Is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? More about the foundation. That's my love. Tell me more about it, because I know you guys are you're in there with kids in the inner city, and it's a great picture of you and Russell of David Lynch and Russell Brand in, a, I was in, in San an Francisco, uh, full of kids. Uh, so Can I what, tell you the story about that with please, Russell Brand? Please. So Russell Brand, who's a great friend, and he's actually helping us now in the UK bring TM to uh, prevention and treatment of uh, opioid, opioid addiction, which in treatment centers. So there's Russell, myself, and uh, David Lynch, and there's the principals there, the superintendent, 700 kids for a group meditation. And Russell drops the F word. Mm-hmm. And the principal says to me, Bob, go over and whisper to him not to say the F word. And I said, Mr. Charles, you really don't want me to do that. <laughs> he said, no, no, I really want you to do that. And he really didn't. No, go do it. So I, I Russell, don't say the F word. Well, he must have said 10. <laughs> so I, he said, okay, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> so the thing is, is um, my, I have felt my deepest desire from working with Bobby Kennedy that I, uh, I you think meditation is a tool for social transformation. I think it can, my whole issue even growing up was equal opportunity, equal access what people do with the opportunities, there's doing. But no one idealistically should be born and not have equal chance at being happy and healthy and successful. Well, there's many things you need. You need good health care. You need all those things. But also the ability to be resilient, the ability to um, – resilience a big one, the ability to reduce your stress so you're not self-medicating yourself. So I always wanted from the beginning to bring this to people who needed it the most at no cost. There should be no obstacle to it. And they should be able to learn it in school or learn it on the job or learn it in a hospital. There should be no obstacle for that. So when I said at the beginning, now 600,000 people, nothing makes me happier than going into the a homeless shelter with the money that we've raised because Paul and Ringo have helped us put on a concert so I can hire three TM teachers often in their 20s or 30s and that's their job. They get $60,000 a year and they work for the David Lynch Foundation and they teach these kids for free in these schools. And um, it's just very fulfilling because I think the tools for social transformation have to begin with the ability to heal the trauma and stress that all these kids are facing. And my goal is to teach a million Syrian refugees to meditate. Mm. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, the organization, where can they go do that? We call this the plug zone. Plug away. I want to plug everything you got. 10%. TM.org. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh-huh. That's the TM organization. And DavidLynchFoundation.org. David Lynch Foundation will talk more about the work we're doing. I think those two are, are fine. And are you on social media or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I'm... Uh, Thank you, David. Meditation, Bob. But I'm actually going to do something. I'm going to give everybody my own personal email. Okay. And you can just, you can write, and it's going to me. If you have any questions or complaints or anything we haven't covered, it's bob 
at davidlynchfoundation.org. 100% that goes to me. Yeah, and you, I will answer you your questions. get a lot of emails. Fine. I'm happy Brave to do man. it. Because I think when a person comes to me to learn to meditate, they come for – and to you, they come with their whole life behind them and they're having – they're concerned, and also families are learning together. They're coming because they're concerned about their teenage kid, and then their you know job, and they're worried, and they don't want to necessarily take drugs or something, medication. And so I take each person, and every TM teacher. There's thousands of TM teachers. Every person is a universe, and every person deserves full attention and caring, and that's what we do. So if you have a question, email me, and if I can't answer it, I'll send it to someone you know. Every person is a universe. I like that a lot. Good place to end it. Thank you very much. Strength and stillness, Bob Roth. Thank you, Dan. And I think you have done a lot to take away the whole misconception about meditation in general. And you are really uh, helping people a lot in the same. We're trying to do the same thing. Primarily, my tool is like Russell Brand. I use the F word a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.